0: Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial, a nationwide digital bank built for doctors by doctors. Visit panaceafinancial.com today to open your account and join a bank built with you in mind. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC. <laughs> oh, I hate that. Uh, trying, trying something new. Uh, welcome back. This is the Curbsiders. I'm, I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my good friend, Dr. Paul Williams. On tonight's episode, we're going to be talking about antibiotics, uh, a pretty pretty ambitious script here, Paul. Uh, <laughs> it's a broad overview of antibiotics, the classes, what, when you might think to use them, some of the pitfalls, the side effects. Our guest, Dr. Adi Shah, he'll tell us about some of his favorite antibiotics and why. And a reminder that this and most of our episodes are available for free CME credit through our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Now, Paul, can you tell the audience what do we do on this show and tell them a little more about our guest?
1: Sure, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. This was an episode that was put together by the great Dr. Nora Toronto, who is actually not able to join us because she's busy saving lives uh, in real time. So we found out immediately before recording. So she has missed, but did a great job putting the script together. As you mentioned, Dr. Shaw, half jokingly, said basically we were asking him to condense his three-year fellowship down into a hour-long <laughs> podcast episode, <laughs> which is not far from the truth. But he did uh, yeoman's work in trying to do so. So let me tell you a little bit about him. So Dr. Adi Shah, MBBS, is an infectious disease consultant. He has interest in critical care, infectious diseases, antimicrobial stewardship, and infection prevention and control. He works as an ID doctor in Minnesota. He takes himself as seriously as an unneeded procalcitonin level and believes in using social media for education and humor. Probably seen his stewardship memes on Twitter if you're part of the med Twitter community. He is a proud immigrant medicine and believes that diversity is strength, which is a fantastic sentiment. And he uh, did an excellent job in terms of teaching us everything you need to know to get through an ID fellowship in about, what, 45 minutes.
0: All right. Let's get to it.
1: No pun. Nothing. We're not going to – folks, you're going to be sick of this one. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's harder than I thought it was.
0: <laughs> All right. Adi, uh, we've been talking. I'm already enjoying talking with you. But now we got to let the audience in at some point. So, sure can you give us a one-liner about yourself and and throw in some kind of hobby or interest outside of medicine?
2: Hi, Matt. Hi, Paul. Thank you for having me. Uh, my, I'm a 33-year-old infectious disease doctor, and I'm living life trying to help people while I try to live with my own insecurities. <laughs> Every day, man. Every day. <laughs> well, That's me. Yeah. And I like baseball outside of medicine. I'm a big Chicago Cubs fan. And my 2016 record at Wrigley Field was 24-0, and 0, including Game 5 of the World Series, and I'm still paying back the ticket. <laughs> 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 That's me. <laughs> All
1: right, well, if you like processing your insecurities, might I recommend doing a weekly podcast? It's a great way to sort of care that publicly, um, really up uh, your anxiety and just sort of force you to deal with if
2: it. If I just had your talent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's a low bar to clear. Um, <laughs> let me ask my usual um, question. Speaking of anxiety and ways to cope with that, what give me a book to quell uh, the voices and noise in my head. Is there a book that you've been enjoying recently that you think other others would enjoy? Yes.
2: A book called An Unwinding Anxiety. Oh, perfect. Uh, it, it says that anxiety or stress is a learned behavior, which includes a trigger, a behavior and a reward and we as human beings are just trying to protect ourselves from an evolutionary standpoint and if you break down every stress and anxiety of yours into a trigger a behavior and a reward then you can somehow understand when your stresses are coming on and work on changing that
0: interesting so is this uh that you're fi- you're i maybe i have to check this out if you're re- if you're recommending it you're finding it helpful maybe i have to check this out
2: mm mm-hmm. mhm Paul, we've... you should. It's it's based on, I just heard recently Ezra Klein's podcast. He's the founder of Vox Media. Sure. And he had that guest off the, off the book. And then I went and read the book. And I'm a big fan of Ezra Klein too. And another book I would recommend is his book, uh, which says why we are polarized. Uh, I think it's very important for the times that we live in to understand ourselves, our patients, society, and why there is so much conflict of one side versus the other. It, it enlightened me a lot and I literally read it in a couple of days. So why we are polarized.
0: So speaking of good advice, tell us some other good advice you've got, but maybe from a mentor in medicine, whether it was like a, a peer or or a faculty member you've worked with sometime in your career.
2: Sure, so the best advice I've received was from my mentor, one of my mentors, Dr. Walt Wilson, who is the guideline writer of so many endocarditis guidelines. And he said that, learn how to celebrate your successes and continue the feel good feeling of something good that happens in life and carry that and feel that feel good feeling longer than you would despair over a failure. Because we as human beings, we are entwined to just remember our failures longer than our successes. And I think we need to try and reverse that so that if we celebrate our good things in life and carry that feeling longer, than we despair over the bad things in life that can help us cope with many stresses in life. And I'm trying to do that, man, but it's... Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's hard. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm failing at that every day, but I'm trying.
0: <laughs> Hopefully not feeling bad about yourself failing at no. that. That's it. Then that would be a self-perpetuating uh, system there. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Paul, it's been a little while. I don't know. Uh, Taking a chance here. Any picks of the week? Like It's just sitting there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll give you a pick of the week. I, I feel like I haven't done uh, music for a while, so I'm going to Recommend the album New Skin by the band CRX. It was released in twenty sixteen. CRX is a band that is actually uh, the lead singer has is was with the Strokes, which is a band I should like but don't. Um, (laughs) But but CRX, that New Skin album is amazing. It's actually it's kind of like the Cars filtered through Queens of the Stone Age. It's this very rhythmic power pop, uh, sort of high energy, sort of straightforward rock and roll uh, kind of record that I I enjoy very much. And it just it does not miss. It's just sort of all killer no filler. So if you're if that sounds like it's up your alley, it's the album New Skin by CRX.
0: Okay. That is uh that that sounds like a great recommendation. Paul, so I actually uh this is this is a pickle week and uh you know if, if Apple wants to sponsor us, I, I would just say <laughs> so I'm late to the game in this because I've been out of medical school for uh geez, Paul, eleven years now. And uh the apple pencil i bought one in the past like six months reza uh of cp solvers you know they use that to make their their graphics and he was recommending this to me for the past two years i finally bought one and you know taking notes on it is great you can like change the colors easily you can cut and paste you can erase and uh I've been using it to make figures for our show and I've been using it to take notes and you can pull PDFs. Like there's OneNote works well with it or just the notepad that comes with your iPad or, or your phone. And uh, yeah, I think it's great. I've been having fun with it and I would recommend it to the audience. And if Apple wants to sponsor the show, uh, that would be fantastic. For
1: sure, our DMs yeah. are open.
0: We're sponsored today by Provider Solutions and Development. They are experts in holistic career coaching with over 20 years experience and exclusive access to hundreds of positions nationwide. Recruitment had to change, so they took away the quotas and they started listening to clinicians. Now, there are plenty of options when it comes to your career in medicine, but just like every one of your patients is different, each physician is going to have their own personal definition of success. And that's why Provider Solutions and Development doesn't bring just one answer for all of you. They are career coaching experts who are going to focus on you before helping you find where you're meant to be, because you deserve a job search partner who's going to consider who you are and what your goals are before they start to help you find your next role. They want to know what matters most to you. So start the conversation or reach out to one of their career navigators today. You can go to info.psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders. That's info psdconnect.org forward slash curbsiders and start the conversation today. All right. So with that, let's get on to the topic. Paul Williams, would you would you bring us into it? I, I don't think we're going to start with a case, are we?
1: No, I think let's let's start big. Um so I, I think one of the things we wanted to start with is, you know, a favorite parlor game on internal medicine rounds is Sort of quizzing each other about what antibiotics cover what, and so you decide to start mm-hmm. uh, two antibiotics, and do they cover? And do you cover anaerobes for that, and what covers gram positives, and what's your atypical coverage, and sort of on and on and on until ideally um, someone's <laughs> crying. And I wonder, <laughs> and I, you know, and that that seems like a decent way to think about it. But I'm wondering now that you have a lot of expertise under your belt, what your what your just general broad framework is when you think about antimicrobials and and how to start and what you're starting with. Do you think about it in terms of what they cover? Do you think about it in terms of the types of infections? What's your What's your overarching approach? And then we can kind of narrow it down from there.
2: Sure, that's a great question. And I remember that on rounds two being lab- belabored to the point of exhaustion with those questions. But I, over time, have learned to think about it a bit differently. I first think, why am I using these antibiotics? Is the syndrome more of an infectious disease syndrome or a non-infectious disease syndrome? Who is forcing me or who's asking me that should what should I be using antibiotics? Do I have time to see how the patient responds to current therapeutic regimens? Obviously, septic patient, ICU, different story. However, if you're going empiric, then what is their past antimicrobial exposure? And what is their side effect profile? And what is the suspected site of infection? And do I need to order any specific tests before I start antibiotics to increase my yield of those tests? Remember, blood cultures. And then, is antibiotics enough? Or do I also have to engage source control merchants in the surgeons? So these are the first five or six questions I ask. Is it infectious or not? Do I have time? Do I have to send any tests before ordering them? What is the site of infection? Do I have source control? And then after this, I think, what am I trying to cover? Because if that's the first question you ask, then you sort of anchor yourself with blinkers and stop the differential diagnosis process right there. And that's my pet peeve when somebody says, let's start and I'm like, but wait, 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 let's take a step back. Why? So that's, that's how I approach antibiotics.
0: I also like that you said you start with the question, infectious or not infectious, because... First thing, man, yeah, first thing. Especially if you see the patient that's like persistently febrile and they've been on multiple courses of antibiotics, you you have to think, are you missing a malignancy or is it like a, a dress syndrome or you know something yes. like that? Or our, our
2: mo- my most favorite, somebody comes in with a swollen ankle and oh boy. it's been going on for 11 months. And then we get consulted with mankin for cellulitis. I mean... You first have to think, how if it was really infectious for 11 months, why have they never become septic in the ICU, blah, blah, blah. So that's how I think about it, and that helps me keep the differential very broad. And the more we practice ID, at least where I practice ID, and in general in tertiary hospitals, we are making more non-ID diagnoses these days and stopping antibiotics more than we are just starting antibiotics. because It's easiest to start antibiotics but it needs some amount of discussion and thinking to stop it.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. But, I feel like the consult, a lot of the time is just for permission to do that. Like it's always <laughs> such <laughs> a relief when Adi's like, "Yeah, you can stop animating." Like, oh, thank God! Like I wanted to, <laughs> yeah. but I needed, yeah, I needed someone to give me permission. <laughs> thank you.
0: For I that. didn't have the guts to do it <laughs> yeah, myself. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Because secretly, I think I'm not that smart. So did, uh, yeah, I feel you on that one, Paul. Okay, Adi. So that I, I love that framework and how you how you went all the way through from like starting. Is this infectious mm-hmm. or non-infectious? All the way down to thinking about like the site and pretesting source control. So when you well, now we're at the point where we're actually gonna want to choose an antibiotics, we have to think a little bit about the spectrum and tell us like in, in big buckets, like how do you think about the antibiotics? And then we'll we'll dig into ask some specific questions about each of the classes within those buckets.
2: Sure. So that's a question like how do you define the universe. So, I'm going to try. (laughs) Uh, Especially your universe, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, I break them down into beta-lactams, which include penicillin, cephalosporins, carbapenems, followed by anti-MRSA agents, followed by tetracyclines, quinolones, and others.
0: Okay. So, that's that's a pretty good framework. Very broad. Very broad. Okay. So, the beta-lactams, that's a big group. And Mm -hmm. in that, you said there's penicillin, cephalosporins, and carbapenems. So, mm-hmm. first of all, is anyone using penicillin for anything these days? And of course, I, I know the answer is yes, but can you remind us, like, what, what role is there for just plain old, good old-fashioned penicillin these days?
2: Streptococcal cellulitis, uh-huh. it still works. Um, strep throat, it still works. Pen VK for the win. Yep. Uh,
0: okay. Got it. Got it, and probably like uh, syphilis, right? Like that's uh... syphilis. Oh, of Good course,
2: of course, course <laughs> of course. It still works for syphilis. Right. Yes. So penicillin. Of
0: penicillin's not out, but Paul, your favorite drugs. What is it? A box, amoxiclav. It, I mean,
1: yes. <laughs> not not too, to put too fine a point on it.
0: Yeah. So we should probably just give that to everyone? Adi, uh, I mean what uh, what
2: t- Well, that's what I'm that's what I'm seeing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but But a mock yes.
0: In the I guess in that class of like what we think of commonly as the penicillins, like if someone says mm-hmm. they have a penicillin allergy, we avoid these. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe a good way to break it down is like which sites are we generally thinking of these agents for? You mentioned with the plain old penicillin, but for something like, you know, there's a clav and, and, and you can mention any other ones you think are relevant and tell us like what sites we might think to use those for.
2: Sure. So, amox-clav and ampicillin-sulbactam work great for oropharyngeal infections uh, because they give you great coverage of oral flora and streptococcal mm-hmm. species. Uh, that's how I look at amox-clav and ampicillin-sulbactam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then amox-clav can also work for certain skin soft tissue infections. If it's a simple cellulitis, then just amoxicillin can work as well. Uh, so that's how I approach them. Okay.
0: And you were mentioning you have a mnemonic. I believe it was a lame mnemonic yes. for cephalosporins and how you yes. think about those.
2: Yes. Yeah, so this is going to be a bit longer of an answer. So cephalosporins can be in five generations. And the most common first-generation cephalosporin is cefadroxil, works good for skin soft tissue infections. Cefuroxime is a good second-generation cephalosporin to remember, also for skin soft tissue infections. Third-generation can be cefdenir, works good for uncomplicated simple cystitis. And then everybody's favorite IV antibiotic, ceftriaxone, is also a third-generation cephalosporin. Cefepime, now you start with the pseudomonal activity, gives you anti-pseudomonal coverage. And then fifth generation cephalosporin includes ceftiroline, which is an anti-MRSA agent. The good way to remember is as we progress through the classes of cephalosporins from one to four, it gives you more gram-negative coverage. And coming back to the mnemonic lame, cephalosporins do not have listeria, atypicals like mycoplasma, chlamydia, MRSA, and enterococci activity with the one caveat being that ceftriaxone can be used with ampicillin for enterococcal endocarditis or bacteremias because of the synergy effect.
0: And isn't there a six, um, is it ceftazidime, avibactam, is it, it, and is that...
2: Cyftalizone tazobactam These are also great questions. So these are also agents which give you pseudomonal activity. Ciptazideme Avibactam and ceftalosone yeah. tazobactam Usually we'd have
0: you guiding mm-hmm. us if we were using <laughs> that agent yeah.
2: as I hope so because they should be yeah. restricted. And important point, labs run susceptibilities on these, but don't release it. Because if they do, they'll be indiscriminate use and <laughs> oh, further amazing. resistance.
0: Yeah. You know, uh, we were we were talking about this in a morning report the other day. Uh, Amicacin, like the aminoglycoside, like I always see it on, like mm-hmm. you know, for resistant gram negative. It's like they're always susceptible to, it. and I'm like, we never use that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yes, <laughs> yeah, I hope you no, don't. we,
0: I, you know, I'm. Sh- well, I, the I first thing was maybe... so
1: if there's resistance, you're like, oh, that's bad. Like that can't be. <laughs> that, that can't be.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> this version's in big, yeah. <laughs> big trouble. We would be yeah. on the case there. Okay, so <laughs> cephalosporins, we we talked about. They're they're kind of they're good workhorse drugs, especially ceftriaxone. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, what about the carbapenems? What do you think of those for? Mm-hmm. I, I, Paul and I have a friend. Paul, what's that great Rob Bettiker line about uh, carbapenems? Do you remember? It's like mowing your lawn or something. Like he. Do you know you don't no, remember? No, no I, think he, I think he. I think he says it's like mowing your lawn with napalm. Like if you were, you know, if you were to give it for like, if you were to give it for just any run of the mill infection, it, it's because it just destroys everything. But do they do they actually cover anaerobes as well? Uh, gram positive, gram negative mm-hmm. anaerobes, and what's what's the gap in yes. coverage with carbapenems?
2: MRSA. So and certain carbapenems like urtapenem do not cover mm-hmm. pseudomonas. So the three important carbapenems to remember are imipenem, meropenem, and ortapenem. So imipenem could be a situation that I could use it is for something um, um, like nocardia. Works great for nocardia, disseminated, including brain and lung involvement. Meropenem has excellent anti-pseudomonal activity. And a situation I could we could use it for is ESBL agents, which I'm sure we'll come to uh, in the in, as, as the podcast progresses. And then ertapenem gives you great gram-negative and anaerobic coverage, but it does not give you anti-pseudomonal coverage. But the benefit of ertapenem is that it's a once-a-day drug. And again, it works good for uh, bacteremias when you're sending patients home. But don't use them if other agents are available because, as you mentioned, they, these really destroy the good flora that you have in your gut as well, along with the bad guys. Okay.
0: So that's a good view. And we are I know we're going to dig into some more pearls probably for all these as we progress through things. That was our beta-lactam group. That was the penicillins, the cephalosporins, the carbapenems what mm-hmm. then you said you have some other classes so what, what other ones you know in our spectrum um, what else do you think of and, and what when do you think of these agents
2: sure so then i think of anti mrsa agents these include vancomycin daptomycin ceftaroline and linezolid vancomycin daptomycin ceftaroline or at least vancom and dapto are bactericidal Whereas linezolid is more bacteriostatic, so I, if you're using linezolid for bacteremia, then it should ideally be used with another anti-MRSA agent because you want bactericidal activity. So that's how I look at MRSA agent, vancomycin, daptomycin, linezolid, and ceftaroline.
0: And these are these are more for like your your sick like real sick patients that might be getting intravenous. Because do you think of mm-hmm. um. I was always thinking of like for community-acquired MRSA for like skin and soft tissue, uh, trim mm-hmm. sulfa or Bactrim and, and doxy. Do you do you ever use those or clindamycin for for those?
2: So clindamycin is um, most ID dogs' least favorite antibiotic. I, I,
0: I I'm with you on that
2: <laughs> because clindamycin, along with quinolones, have high association with risk of C. diff. And the only situation that you can think of using clindamycin is early 48 hours of necrotizing fasciitis for the antitoxin effect. That's when you would use clindamycin. Coming to your point of vancomycin, daptomycin, linezolid, and ceftaroline, Yes, most times that you use them are for sick patients right up front when blood cultures are still pending and you don't know what's going to grow from them. And then if there are MRSA in the blood, then you could use these agents. But remember that if the source is the lung, then daptomycin will not work because daptomycin is inactivated by the surfactant. Also, another important activity of vancomycin, daptomycin, and linozolid is enterococcal activity, including E. fecalis, enterococcal fecalis, and enterococcal faecium. Again, depending on your local antibiogram, but these are good agents for penicillin-resistant enterococci too.
0: Yeah. You mentioned it. Paul, do you, do you look up the antibiogram at your local institution? Mm. Like, do you know where to find it? Uh, I, I'm not, to be, I don't mean to put yeah. you on blast. You can lie.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I actually have not memorized. Uh, I was going to get a tattoo of it, sort of Memento style, but then I did realize it changed over
0: time. So. Right. Yeah. But I, I do think that it it is, uh, it's useful. And I, I know some, uh, They they do try to make it like if you hang out with the ID on the ID rotation they always show you where to find it. I wish it was more like front and center, but it is important. Like you mentioned, clindamycin, and I was prompting you with the for community acquired MRSA. You know when we're when sometimes people are using clindamycin thinking that someone Mm -hmm. could have MRSA. I always like you have to look up your antibiogram right because a lot of the times there could be like a thirty percent risk of treatment failure if you look at your antibiogram or more.
2: And you may have alternative agents like doxycycline can work against community MRSA and sometimes cefadroxil can work against community MRSA as well. So yeah. antibiograms are important and every unit in the hospital should have its own antibiogram. So like a BMT or a transplant or a cancer unit will have its own antibiogram versus a general medical floor versus a immunocompetent patient ICU versus a surgical ICU. So it's important to look at unit-based antibiograms as well. Well, and I'll do that frequently even now for especially for agents like Epesium and Ephicalis because they're just very unpredictable when it comes to their susceptibility profile. For like, for example, uh, at, at our shop, Ephesium, if I see Ephesium, then right off the bat, I would use linezolid because at our shop, it has 100% activity versus only about 50% for vancomycin. But at many other places, vanc would be a fair game first start medication for Ephesium because it works, but not at our shop because of different antibiograms.
0: You mentioned earlier, and I can't remember if we got this on air or not, sometimes you're still having to look things up. Can you recommend, mm-hmm. and uh, without saying, I'm sure you're not getting paid to say this, uh, we're just, what apps, like do you have a favorite app or, or book or something that you look up when you're thinking about antibiotics and certain bacteria? I can, I can say personally, I found the John Hopkins Antibiotic Guide useful. That's been available at some of the places I worked um, for free, but do, do you have any that you like to use?
2: We have our internal antimicrobial guide. Um, and Dr. John Wilson, who is one of my mentors, he's also published a Mayo Clinic antimicrobial guide. I use that mm-hmm. uh, often. Then the Sanford guide yeah. is good. But again, I don't know how this answer is going to be taken, but I love UpToDate, man. Why Why not UpToDate? It has got good evidence-based current information, yeah. and I frequently look at there, it. So, you, yeah, usually I don't the remember articles everything. are written by
0: like titans in their field. I think anybody that's, <laughs> at this point, I think we've all just come to terms with, we all we all love using that product. So it's it's But it's
2: your hospital. Then most hospitals, should have your own antimicrobial dosing guide. So I, I use that every day. Like when, I'm on service, I have a two screen. So one screen is always has down a biogram and the dosing guidelines. Got it. Why remember things when you can look them up? Yeah. Especially yeah. simple stuff like drug regimen. Right. So.
0: Okay. So, all right. So we, we got, we were, yeah, Paul, bring us back. Bring us back.
1: No. So I was just, I was, I was just think <laughs> I heard doxycycline mentioned a couple of times and I'm just thinking I I've been lately shamed in the show in the past for maybe being over affectionate for clindamycin and that, that shaming continues. <laughs> I, I'm now hearing that amoxiclav is is the antimicrobial choice of the week, which is also a personal favorite of mine. So I, <laughs> I'm wondering, you infectious disease hero and um and custodian of antimicrobials, what what favors do you have? Is, is doxy among them? Like, what if all the antimicrobials I'm choosing are bad? Just tell me broadly what is good. What do you like? What are your go tos that you go to all the time? Um, that are sort of your hidden gems.
2: Doxy, Norris. So doxy work against acne, works against cellulitis works against Bartonella from like animal bites, works against ticks, works in COPD exacerbation, atypical pneumonias, community-acquired pneumonias, sexually transmitted infections, penicillin-resistant syphilis. I mean, it's oral twice a day. It's a great antibiotic. However, important to remember that it does have two most common side effects, namely photosensitivity, anesophagitis. So if your patient is taking it, ask them to take it with a lot of water. I personally, now again, I don't I hope I don't get hated for this answer. Fluoroquinolones have good utility in certain situations. Sure. I know they're associated with C. diff, tendinitis, aneurysms, neuropsych side effects, but again, PO, great oral bioavailability, can be used for even uncomplicated bacteremias is once a day. So I like that also in certain situations.
0: I wanted to plug, you mentioned oral bioavailability of fluoroquinolones. And mm-hmm. I know that's one that always uh, I always think about. The great Dr. Paul Sachs had a, uh, one of his HIV ID observations blog posts mm-hmm. about like antibiotics with great oral mm-hmm. bioavailability. So we can link to that in the show notes, but trim sulfa or Bactrim's on there, fluoroquinolones, metronidazole, and uh, I believe doxycycline's on there. There's a bunch of other ones, but
2: mm-hmm. trim trim sulfide is a great one too, because again, drug of choice for PJP, drug of choice for nocardia, works great against stenotrophomonas, mm-hmm. works great against toxoplasma, and then your cystitis, UTIs, and as a Evidence is emerging works decently in osteomyelitis also because of the reason you just mentioned of having great oral bioavailability.
1: And while we're right. singing praises, um, I love trimethoprim-sulfamethoxazole. but what, what adverse side effects should be aware of as we're actually going through these? It seems to pair up nicely.
2: Great question. See this all the time. So if you're sending patients on high dose trim sulfa, it does have some significant side effects, namely hyperkalemia and blood dyscrasias, including anemia, thrombocytopenia, and leukopenia. Also, uh, G6PD issues, right? G6PD-mediated hemolytic anemia. So, patients get sent home on these all the time for 7 to 10 days. Make sure you get a complete blood count and a metabolic panel at least once in that treatment course.
0: Any other... Maybe it doesn't even have to be side effects, but any pitfalls with some of the common agents or common mistakes that you see people making uh, with, with antibiotics that you wanted to point out now that we you're, you have a soapbox here to like, what other things are people doing uh, that they, they shouldn't be doing?
2: So Piptazo covers anaerobes. You do not need to add metronidazole <laughs> okay. when you are on Piptazo. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's my biggest pet peeve. Second, daptomycin does not work for long involvement with MRSA, common pitfall. When you're using azithromycin or levofloxacin, always check the QT interval because a lot of these patients have QTCs more than 470. These are some of the common ones that I can think um, right off the bat. Oh, yes, my favorite, aspiration, pneumonia, <laughs> and metronidazole. So, history lesson for Paul and Matt. The whole practice of anaerobic coverage for aspiration pneumonia started in the 1970s. Why, you ask? Because the cultures that grew anaerobes in 1970s patients were taken late in the course of their pneumonia, and they were transtracheal specimens, which are higher chance of having anaerobes grow from their cultures. However, we live in 2021 now and most of the aspiration events are acute events and in about 36 to 48 hours the pneumonitis from this acute event usually dissipates on its own and you do not need metronidazole for aspiration pneumonia coverage that has made its way out of the ATS guidelines as well, except if you're treating an empyema or a lung abscess. So these are the only two caveats. And I see that all the time. Flagyl or metronidazole is not this, you know, solve-all agent. <laughs> so that's that's my uh, pet peeve as well.
0: And please also don't use clindamycin for a, uh, <laughs> yeah. aspiration yeah. pneumonia.
2: <laughs> yes, because, because in a couple of weeks... You will have C-diff.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so last one, I, I wanted to ask about actually azithromycin because that's another one I see used with wild abandon. So it's, mm-hmm. I feel like it's yes. just being almost purely safe. Is there anything else we should be concerned about with that?
2: Um, so C-diff also, along with QT interval prolongation, but it is again a good agent and uh, some of the common etiologies you can use it for are atypical pneumonias, COPD exacerbation, Traveler's diarrhea because of emerging resistance in area that you're traveling to fluoroquinolones. It also has value in non-TB mycobacterial infections. And obviously your skin soft tissue infections like chlamydia, um, chancroids, mycoplasma,
0: genitalium. Our sponsor for this episode is Panacea Financial. As a company founded by doctors, they know how frustrating it can be to work with financial companies, which is why they've created a better way. So if you've ever thought about refinancing your student loans, check out Panacea because unlike other companies, the interest rates you're offered for student loan refinance don't go up because of your credit score, how much debt you have, or your income level. And if you've ever received an offer letter from one of these other companies promising a low rate only to find out that the offer you're getting is actually something much higher than advertised, Panacea does things different. They're not going to waste your time. They are completely transparent and they have four low fixed rates for student loan refinancing that's right there on their website. With no loan maximums or cosigner requirements, their student loan refinance is based on respect physicians deserve and not on a credit score or debt level. So join the growing number of physicians nationwide that expected more from their bank and switch to Panacea Financial. You can visit PanaceaFinancial.com. That's P-A-N-A-C-E-A com today for a better way to refinance your student loans. Panacea Financial is a division of Primus, member FDIC.
1: All right. So this is all very helpful start. Why don't we transition to some cases uh, and we'll start with the Mm -hmm. the cleverly named Mr. Andy Bio, who is a 67 year old (laughs) patient. He has a history of COPD and high blood pressure. He tells us that he developed a cough with greenish sputum about a week ago. The cough has not gotten better. And in fact, he's come down with a fever. He's breathing relatively quickly. On chest X-ray, he has a single consolidation in the right lower lobe. Presumably, he got the screening CT scan that was not consistent with, with COVID pneumonia. He's admitted to the hospital for treatment of his pneumonia. He has no history of recent antibiotics or prior pneumonias. He has no recent inpatient admissions. So before we even get to what antibiotic we'd start considering, or even if we consider one, I just wonder if you could talk us through how you think about just pneumonia in general. What's the framework now? Because it sounds like it's evolved over the past couple of years now. We think about it a little bit differently now.
2: Yes. And so there's many, many aspects to this. You first have to see is this patient sick enough that needs hospital admission or can they get an outpatient regimen? So for do they need hospital admission, the things that can make or break a case are if they're febrile, their respiratory rate, their age, their basic metabolic markers, are they dehydrated, you know, and so on and so forth. So it looks like this gentleman has fever, they're breathing fast, their respiratory rate is high, So, and they have a clear consolidation. And just because their respiratory rate is high, uh, they may tire out in a bit, so you want to admit them and get them to an inpatient regimen. The question gives you a lot of information to help you pick the right regimen. It tells you they've never had a recent antimicrobial exposure, or they do not belong, uh, or they do not have healthcare system exposure. And therein lies when choosing what antibiotic you choose as to what patients are at a risk for multidrug resistant organisms. So if they have heavy healthcare system exposure, if they've been heavily exposed to antibiotics, if they're dialysis patients, if they have been living in a nursing facility or an assisted living facility recently. These are all situations that you would want to cover a little bit more broadly. And then, of course, if the CT or chest imaging is very classic for like an abscess, then you would want to cover MRSA as well with vancomycin. Yeah, That's how I think of these.
0: So like MRSA, you would think like healthcare exposure, antibiotic mm-hmm. exposure, and then especially if they have like a cavitating, like necrotizing or ab- yes. abscess, something like that. Yeah. And
2: and same for anti-pseudomonal coverage too. Yeah.
0: And so I I always think about, um you know, it, it was when we were, when Paul and I were coming up together in residency, <laughs> it was like community-acquired pneumonia. And then people would talk about HCAP, which is now pretty much mm-hmm. gone away. So now it's either it's like- gone they have community acquired pneumonia with some risk factors for mdro which you just told us what what yes. what would constitute that or if they've been hospitalized and then they yes. developed pneumonia after they've been hospitalized 48 hours we just yes. call that hap like hospital acquired that is correct okay but we're talking about here community acquired pneumonia yes and for this guy he doesn't have those risk factors what might be a reasonable regimen for like a 67 year old guy coming in with uh pneumonia and he's got he's got copd
2: So you would want to pick an inpatient regimen. Uh, So you would want to use uh, cephalosporin to cover your simple strep pneumonia species. And then to cover atypicals, you would want to pick either azithromycin, or you could pick levofloxacin, or you could pick doxycycline. So azithromycin and doxycycline are a bit better. Uh, Levofloxacin I would hold, especially if you're not discharging the patient immediately. So that would be my first regimen Um, and then also remember to remember what constitutes atypicals right mycoplasma chlamydia these are the two main h flu constitute your atypical uh, species um and the good thing about atypical coverage is that it can also give you some legionella coverage. Now the classic presentation for a legionella uh, involvement is you you know, your waterfalls and hyponatremia and diarrhea and so on. So my first regimen would be ciprofloxacin and either azithromycin or doxycycline.
0: And doxy is much more uh, C diff friendly or if the person yes. has like QT issues, you yes, it sounds exactly. like you might you might exactly. choose doxy. So exactly for this guy, if we were to change the case, and let's say he had uh, been treated like multiple times for COPD exacerbation, how might you change your initial antibiotics? Like, it, does he automatically get like MRSA and pseudomonal coverage uh, for, for this patient?
2: So it depends on how sick they are. So if they're septic in the ICU on pressers, then you would want to cover for MRSA with vancomycin and then cover some anti-pseudomonal agents like cefepime or... Piptazo can work as well, but do remember that kidney dysfunction with Piptazo plus vancomycin combination, the longer you use, the more chances of nephrotoxicity. If it's just the first 48 hours and then you're going to either stop one of those or stop vancomycin, then vancomycin and Piptazo is okay. However, if, if the sick patient in the ICU, then I, you could start with vancomycin and cefepime. Remember to order the MRSA nasal swab. A really good predictive uh, nature of the MRSA nasal swab and MRSA pneumonia. So if you have an MRSA pneumonia, you must have an MRSA nasal swab, which is positive. So how I approach it is, if it's a sick patient, start vanc and cefepime or vanc and piptezo. Get an MRSA nasal swab. If it's negative tomorrow, drop the vancomycin and continue the other agents. Get some sputum cultures, and if they're in the ICU getting a bronch, then get deeper cultures.
0: Paul, do you ever double cover for pseudomonas? Did you ever like? What's? I just feel like that is. I I've never understood that. I.
1: Feel like I knew we were supposed to, or at least I had the sense that we were supposed to, but never actually did. Yeah. It, was kind of um, <laughs> my approach. This is this is the, the, the episode where you try to get me sued for some reason. I'm not sure and, why you're out there And I, I like. should
0: say, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul. Uh I just want to hear the sound of your yeah, voice, sure. Paul. You know that. Come <laughs> on. Um and and uh Adi, you did mention to us beforehand. Like we should caveat the audience. Like there's many right answers. Like this we're just we're just talking as colleagues. We're just trying to get a sense of like what might be a reasonable course of option. But there's probably many right answers to some of these. Yeah. Uh as but there are there's probably clear wrong answers, but how yes. do you do think not about...
2: cancel me saying but what about this <laughs> reach out on Twitter DMs? You... <laughs> I can take all the abuse Yeah,
0: yeah, just do it privately. <laughs> I, I that's, that's good
2: yeah. Um, But yeah, so that's a great question about double coverage So if you have a patient who's heavily exposed to the healthcare system Especially patients with some risk factors like recent chemotherapy bone marrow transplant solid organ transplant and they're in the ICU and they're septic on two or three pressers, then up until you know, you may want to double cover with two pseudo anti pseudomonal agents. The options could be piptazo along with levofloxacin or piptazo with one quart of tobramycin or amikacin, or cefepime, and tobramycin, or amikacin, or levofloxacin. This is so that you can have some double coverage off if you're suspecting uh, pseudomonas till you get the susceptibility results back. However, remember, if it's a floor patient, stable, eating their lunch, and waiting, then do not expose them to pipcazole, <laughs> and Levoquin and all these antibiotics, because there are studies that every Dose of an anti-pseudomonal agent disrupts your gut microbiome and puts you at a higher risk for C. diff. So that's how I approach it. Based on look at the patient, sick patient, pressors, immunocompromised, heavily antibiotic exposed. Yes, sure, double cover. If not on the floor, you have time. Looking stable, first ever time admitted to the hospital, you really don't need piperacillin-tazobactam.
0: Okay, and. I I wanted to uh, just give a shout out to that. The the ACP in, I believe it was in 2021, put out this appropriate use of short course antibiotics in common infections and community-acquired pneumonia was continued, was part of that. And they talked about how you can consider stopping antibiotics at five days for community-acquired pneumonia as long as they've reached clinical stability. So that means like they're off oxygen, they have a normal mental status, their vital signs are stable- and is that your practice, Adi, Absolutely. and like why are, we, why are we pushing now for these like very shorter courses? We're gonna we're, When we talk about UTI and some of these others, we're, we're also talking about shorter courses now. Why is that becoming so popular?
2: Because we are having more evidence for it. And I just said that every day of an anti-pseudomonal agent increases your chance of C. diff and disruption of gut microbiome. And lastly, shorter is better. Uh, and shorter works. As you said, if your patient improves clinically, they're afebrile, breathing normally, feeling fine, back to baseline, then five days is fine for community-acquired pneumonia. A frequent question I also get asked is, when can I transition from IV to PO when they're in the hospital? Some of the similar measures that you mentioned, improved respiratory uh, rate, a febrile, feeling better, then you can switch from IV to P.O. And just because they're in the hospital, another pet peeve, just because they're in the hospital does not mean IV when hospitalized and P.O. on discharge that line is just why, why? <laughs> There's no, yeah. This, except, yeah. I don't know why. Think about your that.
0: patients. They have to be, you're giving them fluid. These people yeah. have other medical problems. They're linked to the IV. It's yes. just, yeah.
2: And great point. So vancomycin, piptazo, miropenim, these agents can, contain a ton of salt, especially every patient. I say that every patient who gets into the hospital gets three things, fluids, frequent uh, finger sticks and lack of sleep. So let's let's prevent them from getting more fluid and more salt. And especially if it's a patient with some heart failure brewing in the background, you're going to see it because what's going to happen, they're going to be on oxygen two days later. And then somebody will add vancomycin saying, oh, they're not improving. (laughs) But it's just because of the fluid (laughs) they're getting
1: from their antibiotics.
0: All right. Let's- uh, Sorry for no, the no, rant. I was going to
1: say, Matt, are, are you not required by law at this point to reference the great Paul Sachs essay on choosing antimicrobial duration?
0: Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Thank Wait, you, so, Paul. I mean, no, I, I I, like we we have to-
1: And Dr. Brad Spellberg, too. Yeah.
0: So so Brad Spellberg has a great website. We talked about it on our ACP episodes recently um, when he was talking about the IV versus PO for osteomyelitis and some of these other infections, but- Paul Sachs had written a blog post, very short, it's like less than a page, I believe. And he talks about how pretty much all antimicrobial regimens need to be a multiple of five or seven, and that he talks about all these weird numbers yeah. that we never use. If you want to freak someone out, give them like a six-day course <laughs> of antibiotics.
2: <laughs> yes. I, I yeah, I, I put out a tweet recently saying, no one, absolutely no one, everyone, 10 to 14 days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, five, seven, ten, fourteen. 14, uh, yeah, I agree with Dr. Sachs. Yeah. You know, so
0: we'll totally. we'll put that in there. It's called How to Figure Out the Length of Antibiotic Therapy. And it's it's probably my favorite piece of medical writing ever. It's just like it's very short and sweet. It's it's hilarious. And I think it still holds true even with uh, the newer antibiotic uh the shorter durations because he has all that caveated in there. So well, it's great stuff. I'll
1: never forget this was medical school and I had an ID attending named Brandon Palermo who when we were talking about durations of antimicrobial, he's like you realize these are all just based on the lunar calendar, right? Like there's no science behind any of this. So I was like, oh, that's that's a fair point.
0: <laughs> I think now we're starting to get some science behind it. Uh, but yeah, like there was there was not much, I guess.
2: Paul, do we... Yeah, and that's the thing with ID. Sorry to interrupt There's just a lack of good RCTs because it's hard to do RCTs. Yeah. So usually we're on the side of caution. That's where all these multiples of
1: 10 and 5 and IV come into play. <laughs> All right, let's let's transition to a, another favorite infection. Let's let's do skin and soft tissue and another cleverly named patient. This is Mrs. Diabetes. Um, I cannot believe we've not used that name before. That cannot be possible. <laughs> 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 I cannot there's believe there's got diabetes that in our house. Someone look that up and let me know. But we'll say she comes to urgent care because her foot is hurting her. She says on the plantar aspect of her foot she has this. Hot, painful sore that has been draining for some time. She can't really characterize it. It's, say, two centimeters by two centimeters. You don't see bone, but it's kind of reddish and kind of draining some gook. Uh, and she does mention, uh, if, in case you could figure out by her name, a past history of diabetes is perhaps not well controlled. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I don't want to make any assumptions here. So I, I I guess talk us through your approach to a patient with a, with a diabetic foot wound and, and how worried we should be in sort of how you, what your initial framework is, then we can get kind of granular on it.
2: Sure. So I first tried to delineate whether it's a deeper infection, like an abscess, or if it's just a simple streptococcal cellulitis. The difference is that if it's a simple streptococcal cellulitis, usually they sleep at night, wake up in the morning with a red foot, which is painful, hot, warm. If it's an abscess, then it's usually fluctuant or induration going on there or some amount of pus coming out of one of the fluctuant lesions. That's where the differentiation happens, uh, and that's important because if it's simple streptococcal cellulitis without an abscess, then you do not need MRSA coverage. But if it is, then you need MRSA coverage, and then you perhaps need an IND as well. Now, a challenge and these are really tough infections in patients who are diabetics. Now, if this is the first episode, then this uh, first episode of this infection, then that's how I would approach it. But if they're having chronic ulcers, wounds that are open and gaping, 10 days of augmentin here, 10 days of back from there again and again and again. And if it looks like there's some amount of necrosis coming, then you have to either based on your physical exam or imaging rule out osteomyelitis.
0: And my, my understanding about the imaging for osteo is that plain films are fine to start with because if you see something, you know, you yes. can use it, You're you done. can follow it. If you don't see something and your suspicion is high, you're probably going to need to go for MRI, to which yes. has better sensitivity. Um yes. But plain films aren't like completely worthless. I think they are not. I think some people may be led to believe that because they've seen enough of them be normal, and then you get the MRI and it's osteo. But I think that's just your. You could potentially save the patient an MRI if it if it is positive.
2: Absolutely. And as you said, if you're seeing clear osteo on the x-ray, then don't get an MRI to confirm, because we live in times of excesses. And this happens all the time, that even if sometimes the x-ray is positive, you get an MRI. But if the x-ray is non-conclusive, then you may want to get an MRI to have better films to rule out osteomyelitis. And then the goal standard of diagnosis of osteomyelitis is a bone biopsy. So you will always need to uh, engage your ortho colleagues
0: what confuses me a little bit is it it seems that I, i've worked in a number of different hospitals at this point in my career uh, cash cashlacs all throughout the country and it seems like there's there's local ways that that people when you when you bring someone in with a diabetic foot that it's always a little bit of a different flavor with like what the starting mm-hmm. antibiotics are and mm-hmm. i I just wondered like what what do you think if it, let's say you're you're a new intern listening to this and you're going to be admitting someone overnight and they have a diabetic foot infection, what might be like a good a good starting regimen for someone who's not like going to intensive care for someone who's just coming into the floor, maybe they have like a little bit of uh sepsis, but they're not like crashing? What might be a good regimen?
2: So if they have if they have fever and elevated inflammatory markers like ESR, CRP, or an elevated white count, and clear signs of infection, then obviously you cannot wait for uh, much time before you start antibiotics. If they have a history of heavy antimicrobial exposure, and especially if they're uncontrolled diabetics like our patient, then you need to have MRSA and anti-pseudomonal coverage. Sometimes in diabetics, if there's clear necrosis going on, then remember what bacteria like necrosis, anaerobes. So you have to cover those as well. So a good starting regimen and a chronic wound in an uncontrolled diabetic with some necrosis would be vancomycin plus cefepime plus metronidazole. But the most important part is engaging your surgical colleagues because if you don't do anything about it, how are you going to treat with what for how long?
0: Mm -hmm. Sometimes, I mean, if, if someone goes for an amputation is something that I've seen a couple times, which I guess in some ways is good for the patient is that if they get the amputation and they get a completely clean you know, sometimes I guess they'll get cultures from the residual, what looks like healthy tissue. And if those are negative, they only treat for like two to five days. Is that pretty standard practice everywhere?
2: Absolutely. If if at that, like if, if they get an amputation, it's a clear joint or a clear toe that is involved, you get amputation, then theoretically, you can just stop then. However, if there's a little bit of overlying cellulitis in the skin surrounding the amputation, as you said, you can give up 48 hours of some antibiotic regimen that they've been given perioperatively and then stop. Five is too long. I don't know why you would do five Mm -hmm. unless there's extensive cellulitis in the region of the amputation so and these are challenging discussions to have with the patients because you know it's loss of a part of your body but if it's a chronic infection and they come again and again then the best treatment is amputation you can do weeks of antibiotics it's not going to work if the tissue there is necrotized and there's no blood going there how are you going to treat it important to note is to also involve vascular colleagues to do vascular studies off your legs mm-hmm. to make sure that before you do amputation, make sure that after amputation the wound's gonna heal heal. And for that, make sure there's good blood supply there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think probably part of the reason why I feel so inadequate when treating diabetic foot infections is it it really seems like a multidisciplinary and when you read about it, they're like, you should have wound care, you should have vascular, exactly. you should have infectious diseases. If their diabetes uncontrolled, consider endocrinology as well, you know, like it's it's like mm-hmm. a big effort to try to pull this person out of it and it and it seems like as we talked about earlier there's just a lot of room for art when you're choosing your antibiotics and duration. Mm-hmm. Paul, we talked about this recently um after our one of our a- ACP shows about this oral versus IV antibiotics. Let's say we weren't able to cut clean margins and it's not going to just be a short course, it's going to be this person needs four to six weeks because there's some residual mm-hmm. osteo. Paul, have you seen anyone going with just oral antibiotics yet for that?
1: Um, I have not personally, but that also I, I very do very little inpatient time. So by the time they get back to me, they've probably already completed their antimicrobial regimen. So I might not be the best person. yes yeah, so you're.
0: You, yeah, I just thought maybe some of your primary care patients, if they were coming back to you on an oral for an osteo. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet either. But I have. You have. So, is, do you think yes. that's where we're moving now? Like uh, Dr. Spielberg, uh, Brad Spellberg at ACP was talking about. There was a lot of evidence that that there's some equivalence between oral and IV for osteo and some of these other infections that we classically thought were just needed IV for four to six weeks.
2: Yes, I think that's where the pendulum seems to be shifting. And there's great opportunity for somebody to do an elegant study here. Because why do we pick IV? We pick IV because you want 100% oral bioavailability and get to the site of the infection. But if you have a corresponding oral agent like a fluoroquinolone or trim sulfa that can do something similar, then why not? So I trained in you know a community hospital south side of a big metro city. And there are some patients who either cannot afford it or have issues with follow-up or have issues with, you know, maintaining lines and such. So in those situations for osteomyelitis, I have used trim sulfa and I have used fluoroquinolones in the past, but now I work at a different center and I've not used it here, but there is opportunity to do that. Um, Again, it's just based on simple pharmacokinetics and dynamics of the antibiotics.
0: Yeah, I, I hope we st- start to see more of that because you d- you do see patients like in some cases they can't go to their own home when they even though mm-hmm. they want to because they there's no one that can give them like the infusions there or for whatever some mm-hmm. reason for insurance it's cheaper for them to go like get yes. stay in a place and get IV yes. than to have someone come to their house and uh, it just seems like a very patient centered thing that if it is tr- yes. if it's true it seems to be true from the data that we should be hopefully we'll start to see more of this yes um paul any other questions about this topic i mean i think we've covered a ton we've given people a lot of a lot of antibiotic pearls we've certainly done other episodes if if people want to go back through the back catalog we can link to some of our other id type episodes but paul what any last things here
1: no i i guess while we have out of here i, I would ask any other opportunities for stewardship i think since that's um Since that's such an important topic too, is there anything that we didn't discuss that you'd like to talk about in terms of just being mindful in terms of how we choose and what we choose?
2: Yes. So uh, there's a common misconception about stewardship is that it's all about stopping antibiotics. That's incorrect. Stewardship means using the right antibiotic in the right dose for the right amount of time for the right patient. That's what stewardship means, not just stopping antibiotics. And second important thing is look at your patient before Starting antibiotics and when deciding what antibiotics to pick, and third is guidelines are meant to guide, but you still have to tailor your recommendations based on the patient. So that's what I would recommend. Sorry, that was that answer was sort of all over the place, but yeah. I think those are <laughs> yeah. actually like great take-home <laughs> yeah. points for the
0: episode. I I, uh, I think those are great take-home uh, I've got, home I've points. Got,
2: I go. I got one more too, actually. Uh, Multi-drug-resistant organisms do not care about your feelings or emotions. (laughs) So if you're just starting an antibiotic because you're scared, MDROs do not care. Also important is sometimes to acknowledge the elephant in the room. Like if you're having a patient with advanced, say for example, dementia or advanced malignant cancer, it's hard to talk about those issues than it is to say oh the patient with dementia has an E. coli UTI and ten to fourteen days of something. So remember that that these agents cause harm to the patient. So let the clinical evidence and the patient convince you to start antibiotics versus just approaching everything as Vank cansaulsa, you know? <laughs> or vanc- <laughs> sorry, bank vanc- and Pip-Tazo
0: A- Amen <laughs>
2: Yeah
1: <laughs> all right This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy? Sure. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
0: And we're committed to providing you with high value, practice-changing knowledge. But to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can also contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. I wanted to thank our producer for this episode, the great Dr. Nora Toronto, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Mad Dog Maddie Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov is on the website, MJ Allen and Jeff Carter on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
1: And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing our theme music, and we should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterley for editing our audio. As always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams, thank you, and goodbye.
0: And Paul, one last thing I forgot I to mention about that this. our friends from VCU Health Continuing Education provide free CME credit for this episode for all healthcare professionals. Go to curbsiders.vcuhealth.org.